Our text this morning is from 1 John chapter 1. You can find this on page 1021 in the Bibles placed on the chairs in front of you. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ashton. You may be seated. I am Ransom Kent. I'm the pastor here at Grace, and I am so thankful that you all have joined us this morning. It's good to be back. Julie and I were away last week celebrating our 15th anniversary and we just had a marvelous time and so I am back this week we're starting a brand new series we're going to be in first John uh, from now through Christmas Eve with a few breaks here and there but um, first John so let's talk about first John this being the first sermon in this series we have to give a little bit of context who is John the John in the title of this letter was it's about the person who uh, it denotes the person who wrote it uh, John was a disciple uh, John was very close to Jesus. He knew him personally. He was one of the three that Jesus spent more time with. And we know that they had a very close relationship because on the cross, Jesus is there. John is the only disciple who came near. And uh, so there's John, and then there's Jesus' mother Mary. And on the cross, he says to John, excuse me, behold your mother. And to Mary, he says, behold your son. And so there was such a close relationship that upon his death and his resurrection, his ascension, he wanted John to act as Mary's eldest son, to take care of his own mother. Um, so after Jesus ascended, John transitions, transitions into the role of apostle, uh, people who knew Jesus personally, who were essential to the building of the church. I love telling this story about John. It's, it's from the history of the church. It's not from Scripture. Uh, but there's a story told by our church fathers that uh, during the rule of Domitian, who was a Roman emperor, uh, John was apprehended for the preaching of the gospel. He was brought to Rome, and they filled up the Colosseum, and they put a boiling pot of oil in the middle of it, and they, they were going to kill him by dipping him in it. It sounds awful. I was going to tell Steve, we probably should think about that for a fundraiser, like a boiling oil dunk tank or something. Um, but what happened was uh, he, nothing happened to him. Nothing happened to him. It was a miracle. And I love this story because it says the person who's telling the story records that every person in the Colosseum who witnessed it became Christians. And so um, 
After that, uh, he was exiled to Patmos, where most famously, I think, he wrote the book of Revelation. And then after Patmos, he moved to Ephesus, where he died a very old age. He wrote 1 John during his time in Ephesus. The story goes again from church history that in the, his, his uh, later years, uh, he was not, uh, didn't have enough strength to walk to church himself, so he was carried there. And in the whatever strength he had, he would utter each service, little children love one another. And I just think that's an interesting, sweet testimony from one who used to be called the son of thunder for his, his attitude and his personality. And so uh, he just, after knowing Christ and seeing what he saw, he had become someone who, who, who knew the love of Christ and wanted others to exemplify it to one another. Uh, so, so John the Apostle is writing. Who is he writing to? Primarily and, and originally, he's writing to several churches in Asia Minor, which would be present-day Turkey. But because we believe uh, that the Bible is inspired, as John was, was writing and the Holy Spirit was inspiring, he also was writing to us, the church. And so this letter, 1 John, is for you and for me. And so let's ask the question, what was he writing about? This letter was written in a response uh, to some false teachings. So these false teachers who were teaching Gnosticism were making their circuit throughout Asia Minor, and John was refuting those teachings. And so um, in a moment of nerdness, let's talk about Gnosticism just for a moment. We have to understand a little bit about Gnosticism to understand exactly what's going on. Uh, so Gnosticism, it's alive and well today, but the basic tenets are this. First of all, Gnosticism, the word gnosis means knowledge, and so they were looking for some secret knowledge from God. And when you had the secret knowledge, you had arrived, and when you didn't have it, you were out of luck. So it was kind of this performance mentality on what you know. There was a kind of a varsity, junior varsity thing going on. They also believed that flesh was absolutely corrupt. There was nothing good about our bodies, nothing good about creation. It was all bad, and the spirit was absolutely fully good. And so there was this idea that we should be seeking spiritual things and rejecting all things fleshly. There's uh, this kind of, um, this uh, occurs in a couple different ways. One, um, some sects of Gnosticism believe that Jesus was without a body. Uh, he was actually a spirit pretending to be a human. Uh, others, this I found this interesting this week, some later versions of Gnosticism make Judas Iscariot the greatest disciple. Why? Because he's the one who had the secret conversation with Jesus. And Jesus said to Judas, you've got to help me out of this body. And so Judas betraying him is actually the ultimate faithfulness. It's, it's just strange how all these things come to be. Um, to give you some examples, probably the, the earliest writing that we have from Gnosticism is called the Gospel of Thomas. And um, it's written probably sometime around when John was in his elder years. But let me give you some examples of what happens in the Gospel of Thomas to give you this idea. Um, so the, the idea of the secret knowledge, I think most of us might be familiar with the parable that Jesus tells of the 100 sheep. And when one goes astray, Jesus has such great love for all the sheep that he leaves the 99 together and he goes after the one to bring it back into the fold. Well, the Gospel of Thomas says it a little differently. It says that Jesus said the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one because it is the strongest, the biggest, and the one he loves most. You see that performance mentality there. Jesus goes after those who have that special knowledge, who have that X factor that he's looking for. This one's one of my favorites. You ladies will love this. 
Uh, the last phrase of the Gospel of Thomas, so it's a collection of phrases. Peter comes to Jesus, and he's all put out. He's miffed, and he says, Jesus, why is Miriam hanging around? Don't you know she's a woman and women are worthless? And Jesus, in his Gnostic love, says this, Peter, relax. Very soon, I will make Miriam a man, and then she will be saved. Warms your heart, doesn't it? It's lovely. Um, but that's that whole division of flesh and division of what is right and good and what is not. And so what is John doing? He's reacting to the, these hodgepodge of beliefs that are culminating in one of two lifestyles. These people in Asia Minor are either uh, seeing that flesh is bad, living these austere, strict lifestyles, or because flesh doesn't matter, they're going over the top in indulgence. And so John is responding to these things, and what is he doing? He's reminding the church of Asia Minor, he's reminding us what Christianity, what, what the essentials of the Christian faith are. In a way, he's reminding them what it means to really be a Christian. That's where we get the phrase or the word epitome for this sermon series. And he starts with verses one through three here. And I want you, I'm going to read these to you rather quickly, but listen for not only the physical words that he uses, but listen for the spiritual phrases as well. Verses one through three, that which was from the beginning, this is from eternity, Speaking of spiritual things, we have heard with our ears, right? We've seen with our eyes. We have looked upon it. We've touched it with our hands. These are very physical words concerning the word of life. The life that was made manifest, meaning this eternal thing, this, this spiritual thing was made manifest. It was made actually physically a body in front of us. We've seen it. We testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that too, you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. What's he saying in these verses? He's saying, listen, Jesus was really a man. He really was a man. He became flesh. And guess what? He is, he was, and he will always be God. Both of those things. That's what he's saying in these verses. He's being very specific. God, Jesus was spirit, 100% God, and he was 100% man. And what he's saying here is that our understanding of Jesus, our understanding of the gospel message, it matters, church. It matters. We can't just believe willy-nilly. There are things about both of those things, about who Jesus is and what the gospel says that matter to our lives. In fact, he tells us why it matters in verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy, our joy meaning me, John, the people I'm representing, and you all, our joy may be complete. As we define the Christian life according to Scripture, as we understand the gospel according to Scripture, church, the promises it brings us true, real joy. So this semester, in this first section we're starting with, John is redrawing boundaries. He's, he's retracing lines that had faded for them. And I think for us, I need some redrawing once in a while. I need redrawing. And that's where we're going to be. We're going to be redrawing the boundaries of the Christian life this semester. And so we're going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into verses 5 through 10 for the remainder of our time. Let me pray. Father, I think this morning 
the, the risk here is we're reading verses that may be very familiar to us. I pray that you would engage us in our minds in a fresh way, that you would open our hearts. No matter how hard they are now, I pray that you'd soften them. I pray that you'd allow us to know the presence of the Spirit here and that we would hear what you want us to hear this morning, the pastor included. And so, Father, I pray that as we allow John, the apostle, to redraw the boundaries of our Christian life, that we would hear what we need to hear, we'd obey your word, and that we would know your love. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so, verses 5 through 10, we're going to be spending the rest of our time, John is making a statement. He's drawing boundaries. So here's what John is saying very basically, and this is why you've asked me to be your pastor, these kinds of mind-blowing truths. The Christian life is lived in relationship with God. That's what he's saying. The Christian life is lived in relationship with God. We're just going to pray now. It's the end, all right? But listen, he does this in actually a very systematic, explicit way. Uh, he's, he starts by reminding us that the core of the Christian life is lived in God's presence. God's presence is the core of the Christian life. Where God is, so is the Christian life. And John is explicit here. He gets semi-scientific. I don't normally do this, but I think it's, it's good to do this. Um, you see in verse 5 and verse 7, uh, the words light are used. Now, the English word light means light. It can mean all kinds of different things. But the Greek behind it, I don't normally do this, but again, I think it helps. The Greek behind these, these three words are different. There's two different Greek words being used. So in verse 5, the word phos, P-H-O-S, is used. That word means a source of light. And so you can see the concept being giving, given, God is light. God is the source of light. And then in verse 7, this word is photi, P-H-O-T-I, which means the, the, the sphere of light created by the source. And so he's going to use these two images to explain to us what it means to be near God, to have God in our presence, to be in relationship with God. And so let's look at verse 6. First of all, a relationship with God means you're walking in his light. Verse 6, he says it in a negative way, but understand that the op- he's saying the opposite is true. If we say we have fellowship with him, so if we say I am near God, I am with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So what is a relationship with God? It's being near him. It's being in his light. We, he is, he's saying a relationship with God, to, to have a relationship with God, it necessitates our reflection of his light. It, it's necessary because that's how light works. <laughs> That's how light works. Things that aren't in the light can't reflect it. And things that are in the light do reflect it. That's why we see what it is. And so what he's saying here in very simple terms is we cannot hide at a distance from God and be near him at the same time. It's very logical, very straightforward. We can't hide at a distance and be near at the same time. We either are in fellowship with God, in his light, reflecting who he is, or we are not. We're walking in darkness not in fellowship. He goes on, and one of them is in verse 6, but he also talks about them in verse 8 and 10. He gives two factors of non-fellowship. Two factors of non-fellowship. First of all, ongoing disobedience to God. In verse 6, this is, we we cannot say we have fellowship while we walk in darkness. That's what this phrase means. It means ongoing, unrepentant disobedience. I'm doing what I want. I'm doing what I want. 
God can't tell me what to do. That outward, uh, uh, obvious disobedience is, is not being in fellowship with God. But that's not the only one. Look at verse 8 and verse 10. First in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Down to verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. So not only do we have this outward disobedience thing that reveals, hey, you are not in fellowship with God, we also have this narrative in our own hearts about our own sin. That's the second factor of non-fellowship. We can tell by the narrative that we have with ourselves about what our sin is, our relationship to God. And so it's Walking in darkness isn't strictly about bad behavior. You do bad, you are bad. It's what we think, what we believe, what we say about our personal sinfulness. Again, church, it matters. It matters. And I would say this morning, I'm going to go out on a limb. More of us here, there's a mixture of both, but more of us here are probably struggling with that second thing, that self-deception about our sin than the other one. Now, I don't imagine that, that there aren't people here who are in some kind of ongoing outward sin that needs to be addressed as well, but I think a lot of us, we do the right things in our own mind, we live the right way, but we, we have to take acknowledge what's going on in our hearts and in our minds about what our sin is. So here's some examples of what self-deception might look like. First, denial or ignoring your sin. So this could look like Oh, well, it's not so bad. Come on, it's just a TV show. <laughs> you know, I only get drunk once in a, month, once in a while, you know? Um, or you, the other side of that is you just are silent about it. You know it's wrong, but you just don't talk about it to yourself. You're just gonna ignore that it's wrong and keep doing it. Denial or ignoring it. This is another one here. This is a good one. Comparison. One way that we deny the, the, the weight of our sinfulness is we say this phrase, and we all have a list of fill-in-the-blanks here, but, well, at least I'm not fill-in-the-blank. At least I'm not like that person or doing this thing or doing that thing. If we start comparing our sin to others, we are deceiving ourselves. And lastly, I think there's probably more than this, but a third example would be ignorance. What we don't know can't hurt us, so we just don't read our Bibles that carefully, so we, just, we don't feel convicted. Church, let's set it straight. What John is saying, what John is saying is all of those things, when we deceive ourselves of how heavy and weighty our sinfulness is, it's lying to ourselves. It's a lie. So we have to understand, church, sin is sin. We don't roll that phrase out very often anymore. Sin is sin. And so as we walk in the light, this is the first kind of conclusion of what John is saying. As we walk in the light of who God is, an exposure takes place. And the first exposure is it exposes my true sinfulness to me. That's the first thing that happens. As we walk in light, yes, there's all these behaviors attached to it. We understand that. We all know that. But here, the first, and I think most important thing for the church to understand is it also has this internal dialogue going on. When I am in God's light, I know I'm a sinner. Those of you feeling a little anxious, let's step it up a notch. All right, you ready? Going further. It's going to be harder. Walking in the light not only exposes our sin to ourselves. This is where you gulp, right? Maybe think about leaving. 
it's exposed to others. Look at the beginning of verse 7. If we walk in the light, remember this is Fodi, that sphere of God's light that he creates as the source. As we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Stop there. As we are drawn into relationship with God, certainly we understand our own sinfulness. It's a side effect of it. But as we are drawn into the light of God, by God, guess what? There are other people there being drawn into the light. And one of the things that happens is we realize we all have something in common. And what is that thing? We are mangled, we are stained, we are mutilated, we are deformed in our sin. All of us. All of us. We are guilty, every single one of us who've come to Christ, who God has called to himself, we are guilty of specific sins that we have committed against him. And in case you're tempted to compare, well, at least I haven't done that. Listen, James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, what? Is guilty of all of it. And so, all of us, church, your pastor included, we have sinned equally under the law because even if we've only done one thing wrong, we've broken it all. And the beauty of it is in Jesus Christ, as we are called by him near, we are equally forgiven in Christ. So to keep it scary, just for another moment, hang with me. I, I think that we like to think of fellowship as a fun chat. <laughs> Hey, how you doing? Good, great. Listen, what is fellowship? According to this passage in John, fellowship is the exposure in God's mercy of our sin to one another. That's what it is. And so I want to comfort you in this way. First, walking in the light does not require perfection. It's not what it means. It's not something that if you do certain things in the right order, that's Gnosticism, remember? That's, that's having a special knowledge. No, this is not walking in perfection, but it's actually a little worse than that. It requires exposure. It requires exposure. If you think about it from a certain perspective, what is the Christian life but our sin on display with one another? That's the Christian life. Well, that sounds fun. The reality is many of us, we, we like, we're actually okay with confessing our general sinfulness, but how hard is it at times to be specific with other people? And at certain levels of appropriateness, add that little caveat to what I'm about to say. Everyone, every Christian, what do we need? What do we need? We need a fellow Christian in our lives and I chose this word very carefully, with whom, not to whom, with whom we can confess our specific sins and humility. We need it. We need it. Not because they offer something that God doesn't, but because it's a reality of living near God. It's a reality of God calling us into the light. It's unavoidable for the Christian because of what the Christian life is. First of all, we are enlightened to our own sinfulness in our hearts. And secondly, we know that everybody around us is equally sinful. It's part of our fellowship. You can breathe again. There's some comfort in this passage. We find it in the second part of verse 7 and verse 9. Let me read it to you. Then talk about it. 
So verse 7 begins, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We're exposed to one another. But here's the good news. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In verse 9, if we confess our sins, he, being God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Church, we do not serve a begrudging God. We do not serve a God who holds his nose while he scrubs us down. I was thinking about those ridiculous videos on YouTube where dads are changing diapers and they can't handle it, right? That's not who God is. He's not disgusted by us. He wants nothing more than to live in his light with us. And so the good news, here's some good news for us. The exposure of our sin, wow, that's intimidating, but here's what it is. It's the cleansing of our sin. And guess what? The cleansing of our sin means the death of our sin. Do you hear that news? That is good news. The exposure of our sin means the cleansing of our sin, which means in, in time, through God and his work in us, the death of our sin. Praise the Lord. And God's not just overlooking our ugliness, not trying try not to make eye contact. No, this is on purpose, church. This is on purpose. Remember our summer series. What did we learn about God? That God invites us in, not begrudgingly, not angrily, not in an annoyed manner. What does he do? He gives an invitation that's full of love, full of mercy, with a longing to be kind to his children. And so we have the two promises here. First of all, the fact that God the Son died on the cross for our ugliness. He was aware of it. And he did it on purpose. And so if you think about it this way, listen, this, is, this can ease some of our anxiety about exposure. Our sins were exposed before we ever were born. Jesus Christ being nailed to the cross is an exposure of our sin. He faced our shame. He, he said guilty to the things that we have done. Someone else took the shame and we are washed, church, by the blood sacrifice of someone else. That is such good news. The idea that God took it upon himself to make forgiveness of our ugliness, forgiveness and acceptance of our sin possible. And so what John is saying here is that God's love is real, his promises are true, and real forgiveness is only found in him, Jesus Christ. So think about it, think about it this way. As we close up the message here, listen, exposure, according to John, is not really exposure. It feels nerve-wracking. It feels scary. But what he's saying is actually exposure in the light of God. It's a natural outcome of being saved from our sin. It's a natural outcome of being saved from it is that people know about it, that, that we know about it, that we accept it, that we admit it. An exposure of our sin, church, in fact, from the perspective of John, is the best thing that could ever have ever happened to us. The best thing. And so we shouldn't run from it. And so as we look at 1 John 1 and we ask the question, okay, as John is redrawing boundaries for us, 
What are we learning about the Christian life? And here's how I would summarize it. The Christian life, the Christian life as redrawn by John, which rhymes, and I'm excited about that. Um, we should we're not even the whole series redrawn by John right now. It's just happening, okay? Um, the Christian life is the life that is lived, exposed to God's perfect, loving light. The Christian life is the life that is lived, exposed to God's perfect, loving light and all that comes with it. We actually have an opportunity this morning to practice fellowship in the light. The Lord's Supper, and I've mentioned this, I think, several times in the last few months, but the Lord's Supper, church, really is a moment of exposure. When you come forward and you take that little piece of bread, you take that little cup of liquid, whether it's juice or wine, do, do we understand that we are admitting our sinfulness in front of one another? We're exposed. By coming down the aisle and grabbing it, you're saying, sinner, <laughs> you can't hide from it. But it's also a moment of exposure to God's love, his grace, his forgiveness. And so, so those of us who know we're sinners, we should have no hesitation coming forward. Why? Because in confidence, not in who we are, but when Jesus has done for us, we come and eat. Not because of our worthiness or our greatness, that's Gnosticism, but in the worthiness and the greatness of God, we come forward. In the, in the comfort that Jesus made forgiveness possible, that God cleanses us through his blood, that he doesn't turn his nose up at us, but he lovingly is kind to us as he draws us into himself, should give us the courage to come and eat bread and drink the juice, and be exposed. So this morning, as you come forward, for those of you wondering whether you should come forward or not, here's what God requires. First, that you admit that you're a sinner. That's the first requirement, that you say, I'm not coming forward because I've earned it, or it's like a, a trinket or a reward. No, I don't deserve it. Secondly, you're coming forward because Jesus Christ is the only way for your ugliness, your mutilation, my sinfulness to be covered. Jesus only. If you've been baptized, you've made that profession of faith publicly, Jesus Christ is here. And he is in this supper. And he is saying, come forward, sinner, I love you. For those of you who don't believe those things, you don't know what to think about Jesus, or maybe you're in that place in your life where you have that sin, that, that sin that you are participating in in an unrepentant manner. The scriptures make it very clear. They warn you against participating. From a human perspective, it doesn't make any sense, right? If, if this is an exposure of your sinfulness and this is a, an admission that you need Jesus coming forward and eating with, without believing those things doesn't make sense, but the Bible takes it a step further and says they warn against that. And so I would echo that to you this morning. Let's take a few moments and pray. Let's evaluate where we're at. Let's thank the Lord. Those of us who know Jesus have been called into the light. Let's, let's thank the Lord that he, he has exposed our sin to ourselves. Let us spend that moment evaluating our gratitude for him. And then in that moment, I'll close us in a prayer of blessing and call, us, call the elders forward to serve.
Father in heaven, thank you for being the fos, the source of light. On our own, that is a light that we could never attain, we could never enter, and yet in your loving kindness, in your justice, in your mercy, in your holiness, in everything about you that is true from eternity and to eternity, you have seen fit to allow sinners access and welcome. You give us what we don't deserve, and and Father, we praise your name for that. And so this morning, as we come, those who do come, I pray that we receive this bread, we receive this liquid, this juice, or this wine, in that attitude where we are thankful, we remember the sacrifice of Christ, but not only that, we remember your promises are true. And what are your promises? That if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive them. And not only that, you are with us personally until the end of the age. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for this church, this family that can be honest about their sinfulness together in your light. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.